This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 2. Learning a Lie As I said earlier, I have always been addicted to recognizing patterns. Much of the phenomena we observe that seem organic or unique are actually the result of repeating processes and systems. By decoding the right patterns, I believe you can achieve goals ranging from the frivolous to the meaningful. When I was 18, I set my sights on getting on a game show. It seemed like an unusual challenge, yet one that offered a potentially fun and lucrative reward. So, I applied to all the shows I had heard of, and some I hadn't even known existed. Some asked for essays. Others, like Jeopardy, asked you to take online tests. Still others, like Wheel of Fortune, simply requested that you fill out a form. I sent away emails and filled out web forms, and then I waited. After months of not hearing anything, one day an email appeared asking me to audition for Wheel of Fortune. Rather than study the puzzles, I decided that I would spend the weeks before my audition trying to figure out what the producers wanted. I watched dozens of episodes, looking for common elements in the contestants' behavior. I, I delved through message boards about how the game worked and read blog posts about other people's experiences auditioning. After hours of research, I found a pattern. The casting team wasn't necessarily looking for expert puzzle solvers. They were seeking contestants who could enunciate, and loudly. They were willing to embarrass themselves, and who came across to a home audience as over-the-top and energetic. That's why instead of studying vocabulary words, I came up with various ways I can embarrass myself. I worked on an Elmo impression that I thought might make the audience laugh, or cringe. And on the morning of my audition, I drank two shots of espresso. A lack of energy would not be an obstacle. It worked. That year, I was cast on Wheel of Fortune. While I lost to Joan from Virginia, I really should have studied the puzzles, I now had a hypothesis. T television producers were looking for a particular type of individual with energy whom, with practice, I could emulate. I wanted to prove to myself that my success at getting cast was repeatable and not a fluke, so I auditioned for another game show. A few months later, I was cast on MTV's Movers and Changers, a cheesy business competition hosted by Nick Cannon. The show was similar to what Shark Tank would later become, and again, I lost. My business idea was judged by some well-known personalities like CNBC's Jim Cramer, who voted me off the proverbial island, or as he would say, sell, sell, sell. Eventually, my preoccupation with patterns led to more serious endeavors. While this book is not a marketing book, although marketers will be able to apply these concepts, many of my observations grew out of my frustrations as a marketer. In 2011, I had become a CMO of a venture-backed startup, and I wanted to improve our performance. Once again, I sought out patterns. I poured through our campaign and audience analytics, and lo and behold, I ended up with data that revealed how we could improve our efforts. I was able to uncover the topics and tactics that resonated with our audience. However, finding these patterns took hours of manual work and was incredibly tedious. So, in 2012, I quit my job and founded TrackMaven, a company that provides predictive analytics to marketers. 
I wanted to automate what I had been doing before with spreadsheets and Excel formulas. Some of the world's biggest brands now hire TrackMaven to decode their marketing data. Our software is built on the premise that if you look at millions of pieces of marketing content from a brand, you will find patterns that answer valuable questions. Should the financial services company invest more in Facebook advertising? What is better for the retail brand to talk about on its blog? Discounts or new items? Is there an ideal number of emails a company should send before customers start pressing the unsubscribe button? Our platform makes it straightforward for companies to answer these questions. Since its founding, the company has been in growth overdrive. We have raised more than $28 million in institutional capital, have worked with hundreds of companies ranging from the Fortune 500s to high-growth startups, and were named one of the fastest-growing companies in America, according to the Inc. 500. Since we digest data from some of the world's biggest brands, we see data that no one else sees. With this unique perspective, I found another surprising pattern, that most marketers are failing. Marketing is supposed to be one of the most creative parts of business, yet according to the Content Marketing Institute, only 30% of consumer marketers believe that their content works. Another study found that only 2.8% of business-to-business marketing campaigns achieve their targets. Failure has become the status quo for most marketers. Why, I asked, are some of the most creative people in organizations failing? To answer these questions, I went on the road to meet with numerous marketers. I wanted to understand why they were more often than not coming up short. What, were they creating too much content? Too little? How could the statistics around success be so uniformly negative? What I found was that today's marketers are following the wrong patterns. They tend to use words like innovation, collaboration, and brainstorming. To me, that is really industry speak for a group of people waiting around for a light bulb moment. Like those who believe in the inspiration myth, they believe great campaign ideas will simply strike them at the right time. Marketers are unconsciously following the traditional myth of the inspiration theory of creativity in their careers and in their offices. What do I mean by that? They design the layout of their offices to foster brainstorming. Conference rooms and whiteboards are scattered everywhere, as if their mere presence might unleash pent-up creativity. According to one trade group, almost 70% of all offices are now designed as open spaces meant to encourage collaboration and cross-pollination. And sure, companies and teams are brainstorming more than ever before. Nevertheless, across the board, most marketers' content does not become viral or ignite sales. Clearly, the open office plans and whiteboard bonanza are not fostering a new era of creativity. Nor is that approach just embraced by marketers. I met with creators from all backgrounds and trades, from painters to chefs to writers to entrepreneurs. I found that across every creative discipline, people have adopted the inspiration theory of creativity as their, minding, as their model for finding, well, stumbling upon, really, mainstream success. The writers I know, the entrepreneurs I know, even the artists I know, try to optimize for moments of sudden brilliance. But even with all the focus on brainstorming and inspiration, most novels fail, most startups go bankrupt, and most artists never take off. Throughout creative fields, the most followed pattern of creativity, one of free association and free-flowing free thought, is falling short. 
Worse, too many people with passion buying into the notion that creativity is the province of geniuses give up even trying to be creators. They abandon their dreams and become consumers of culture rather than creators of it. A recent global study of 5,000 people found that only 25% believe that they are fulfilling their creative potential. On the other hand, there are a handful of creative geniuses, from Pablo Picasso to Steve Jobs, who do achieve large-scale commercial success. How do they do it? And why are the results for most of us so bad? Are these creative geniuses born with an instinct for turning ideas into things to be revered? Are they just lucky? Or is there something beyond our understanding at play? Do most of us have no chance of ever achieving mainstream success? To answer these questions, I decided to reverse engineer creative success. What does it take to create a hit, whether a hit restaurant, a hit screenplay, or a popular poem? Is there a pattern? Is creative success something you can practice, hone, and enhance? I tackled the problem by going right to the source. I spoke with people who had reached the pinnacle of creative and commercial achievement. I wanted to uncover what the world's most successful people did to unlock their potential, even if they couldn't put exact words to it. Flying around the world to meet painters and chefs, Skyping with rock stars and entrepreneurs, I interviewed dozens of creative geniuses on their process, asking about their childhoods, their brainstorming process, and even the layouts of their workspace. I wanted to see if I could find any dots that would connect. I met these people through a variety of circumstances. Sometimes it was as simple as reaching out to them via email. I contacted others through layers of managers, and many were introduced through mutual connection. I also devoured the latest science on creativity, interviewing academics who are using the latest tools and technologies to decode genius, and poring over thousands of pages of peer-reviewed articles and journals. I wanted to learn if science could help us explain what it takes to create a hit. What was the result of my investigation? Not only did I discover the hidden patterns I was looking for, I learned something surprising and exciting that the inspiration theory of creativity simply is not true. In fact, as I will show, studies provide or prove that the majority of us are born with the same creative potential as artists who create hit after hit. I also learned that there is an evolutionary basis for what commands dollars and attention, that successful ideas are not born of mysterious origins, and that what we think of as flashes of genius are actually a biological process that anyone can cultivate. In short, I learned that there is a science and a method to achieving mainstream success, one that anyone can work to master. In this book, I will walk you through the patterns which I found. This is not a marketing book. This is not a self-help book. It is, simply, a guide to understanding the patterns of creativity that result in breakthrough success. You will learn the history of creative thought and how it has developed from the time of the Greeks to today's fast-paced world of Snapchat and Instagram. You will discover the neuroscience that underpins the creation of trends. Finally, you will uncover the four patterns that successful, creative people follow to increase their odds of achieving mainstream success, and you will understand the science that explains why they work. As you will find out, while this is a conscious process for some, most creators follow these patterns unconsciously as the result of similar methods of early instruction and learning. A word of caution, though. 
the standard academic definition of creativity is the ability to make something that is novel and that also has value. It is a mistake to think that creativity is just about creating something different or original. It also has to be valuable, meaning that a group of people, large or small, have found important or usefulness in that creative product. A pop star who creates a hit song has created something novel and of value. An entrepreneur who creates a viral app is worthy of study. This means that my exploration will not just be focused on the traditional painters and artists that you might see at the Getty Museum or the Louvre. While I will talk about many of those traditional creators, I will also include numerous contemporary artists, entrepreneurs, creative individuals, and companies ranging from singer-songwriter Taylor Swift to the flavor team at Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. As a result, I will also dive into the science of trends. Trends signify that a large group of people agrees that something, a song, product, or idea has value. As far as trends are concerned, research identifies two seemingly contradictory urges in the human psyche. People crave the familiar, yet they seek the novel. To protect ourselves from the unknown, we seek the familiar, for example, the comfort of our home or the company of close friends. We also seek the stimulation and potential rewards of novel and unusual things. Anyone who has wanted to try a new restaurant or listen to a new song knows what I am talking about. Studies show that the tension between these contradictory urges creates a bell-shaped curve relationship between preference and familiarity. As individuals or groups are exposed to something, they like it more and more with each additional exposure until it reaches a peak of popularity. At that point, it becomes overexposed, and each additional exposure leads to lower popularity. I call this bell-shaped curve the creative curve. Sociologists, psychologists, and economists have known about and have been writing about these contradictory urges about the bell and the bell-shaped curve they produce for decades. In his 1967 book, Man's Rage for Chaos, Morse Peckham explained how this paradox drives our cultural aesthetic. Almost 50 years later, Jonah Berger's 2016 book, Invisible Influence, described how ideas that are similar but different have the most social influence. Even more recently, Derek Thompson's book, Hitmakers, describes how 20th century industrial designers observed this phenomenon in a principle called most advanced yet acceptable. What nobody has described, however, is how to find the sweet spot on the creative curve, the point of optimal tension between preference and familiarity, safety and surprise, similarity and difference. In the course of my interviews and research, I discovered that popular creators consciously or unconsciously have developed a method for doing just this, whether they are able to articulate it or not. What is called creative genius is really the ability to understand the mechanics of the creative curve and use it to engineer mainstream success. Regardless of the industries they work in, the innovators I interviewed made use of shockingly similar methods. They understand what is familiar and use novelty in ways they know their audience will respond to. Then they slowly change their artistic style to drive continued interest in their work. The methods these creators have learned to master the creative curve are what I call the laws of the creative curve. In the course of the book, I will outline and explain these four laws. The law of consumption, the law of imitation, 
the law of creative communities, and the law of iterations. Creative geniuses consistently outperform the rest of society by either subconsciously or consciously utilizing the laws of the creative curve to develop a scalable system of success that helps them discover or create ideas that combine just the right blend of familiar and novel. For each law, I will explain the scientific thinking that underlies it, as well as offer practical examples of how to use it. The good news is that these laws can apply to any creative field or creative person. Again, the traditional view of creativity implies that we all exist in a world of infinite po possibilities and must wait for a novel idea to cut through the noise. We are told that serendipitous moments can occur unpredictably anytime while we are in the shower, on our commute, or in the boardroom. In this book, I will disprove this, and I will break down the science behind the creative curve, providing you with a methodology that will enable you to maximize your odds of creating a hit, no matter the industry. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.